0: Hey everyone, I'm just going to read a passage today. This is uh, titled, We Had Only Our Ignorance. And the introduction to this piece reads, With the end of Reconstruction in the South, the protections and opportunities provided to freed slaves evaporated. Southern white democratic state governments passed laws sharply restricting the newfound rights of African Americans and segregated blacks from white society. Plantation owners found new ways to bound their former slaves as miserably paid workers through sharecropping and other arrangements. For all practical purposes, many African Americans found themselves in virtually the same position they had occupied before their emancipation. This personal story of one anonymous former Georgia slave, which was published in The Independent Magazine, illustrates the chicanery, corruption, and brutality that characterized black-white relations in the post-Reconstruction South. I am a Negro and was born sometime during the war in Elbert County, Georgia, and I reckon by this time I must be a little over 40 years old. My mother was not married when I was born, and I never knew who my father was or anything about him. Shortly after the war, my mother died, and I was left to the care of my uncle. All this happened before I was eight years old, and so I can't remember very much about it. When I was about ten years old, my uncle hired me out to captain. I was told that the captain wanted me for his houseboy, and that later on he was going to train me to be his coachman. To be a coachman in those days was considered a post of honor. And young as I was, I was glad of the chance. But I had not been at the captain's a month before I was put to work in the farm with some 20 or 30 other Negro men, women, and children. From the beginning, the boys had the same tasks as the men and women. There was no difference. We all worked hard during the week and would frolic on Saturday nights and often on Sundays, and everybody was happy. The men got $3 a week and the women $2. I don't know what the children got. Every week my uncle collected my money for me, but it was very little of it that I ever saw. My uncle fed and clothed me, gave me a place to sleep, and allowed me 10 or 15 cents a week for spending change, as he called it. I must have been 17 or 18 years old before I got tired of this arrangement and felt that I was man enough to be working for myself and handling my own wages. Unknown to my uncle or the captain, I went off to a neighboring plantation and hired myself out to another man. The new landlord agreed to give me 40 cents a day and furnish me one meal. I thought that I was doing fine. Bright and early one Monday morning, I started for work, still not letting the others know anything about it. But they found it out before sundown. The captain came over to the new place and brought some kind of officer of the law. The officer pulled out a long piece of paper from his pocket and read it to my new employer. When this was done, I heard my new boss say, I beg your pardon, Captain. I didn't know this guy was bound out to you, or I wouldn't have hired him. It doesn't say guy in the text. He certainly is bound out to me, the captain said. He belongs to me until he's twenty-one and I'm gonna make him know his place. So I was carried back to the captain's. That night, he made me strip off my clothing down to my waist, had me tied to a tree in his backyard, ordered his foreman to give me 30 lashes with a buggy whip across my bare back and stood by until it was done. After that experience, The captain made me stay on his place night and day, but my uncle still continued to draw my money. I was a man nearly grown before I knew how to count from one to 100. I was a man nearly grown before I ever saw a colored school teacher. I never went to school a day in my life. Today, I can't write my own name, though I can read a little. I was a man, nearly grown, before I ever rode on a railroad train, and then I went on an excursion from Elberton to Athens. What was true of me was true of hundreds of other Negroes around me, way off there in the country, 15 or 20 miles from the nearest town. When I reached 21, the captain told me I was a free man, but he urged me to stay with him, said he would treat me right. And pay me as much as anybody else the captain's son and I were about the same age and the captain said that as he had owned my mother and uncle during slavery and as his son didn't want me to leave them since I had been with them so long he wanted me to stay with the old family and I stayed I signed a contract that is I made my mark for one year The captain was to give me $3.50 a week and furnish me a little house on the plantation, a one-room log cabin similar to those used by his other laborers. During that year, I married Mandy. For several years, Mandy had been the house servant for the captain, his wife, his son, and his three daughters, and they all seemed to think a good deal of her. As an evidence of their regard, they gave us furniture, which cost about $25. And we set up housekeeping in one of the captain's two-room shanties. I thought I was the biggest man in Georgia. Mandy still kept her place in the big house after our marriage. We did so well for the first year that I renewed my contract for the second year. And the third, fourth, and fifth year, I did the same thing. Before the end of the fifth year, the captain had died, and his son, who had married some two or three years before, took charge of the plantation. Also, for two or three years, this son had been serving at Atlanta in some big office to which he had been elected. I think it was the legislature or something of that sort. Anyhow, all the people called him senator. At the end of the fifth year, the senator suggested that I sign up a contract for 10 years. Then, he said, we wouldn't have to fix up papers every year. I asked my wife about it. She consented, and so I made a 10-year contract. Not long afterward, the senator had a long, low shanty built on his place. A great big chimney with a wide-open fireplace was built at one end of it, and on each side of the house, running lengthwise, there was a row of flames or stalls just large enough to hold a single mattress. They looked for all the world like stalls for horses. Nobody seemed to know what the senator was fixing for. All doubts were put aside one bright day in April when about 40 able-bodied Negroes bound in iron chains, and some of them handcuffed, were brought out to the senator's farm in three big wagons. They were quartered in the long, low shanty, and it was afterward called the stockade. This was the beginning of the senator's convict camp. These men were prisoners who had been leased by the senator from the state of Georgia at about $200 each per year, the state agreeing to pay for guards and physicians for necessary inspection for inquests, all rewards for escaped convicts, the cost of litigation, and all other incidental camp expenses. When I saw these men in shackles and the guards with their guns, I was scared nearly to death. I felt like running away, but I didn't know where to go. And if there had been any place to go to, I would have had to leave my wife and child behind. We free laborers held a meeting. We all wanted to quit. We sent a man to tell the senator about it. Word came back that we were all under contract for ten years and that the senator would hold us to the letter of the contract or put us in chains and lock us up, the same as the other prisoners. It was made plain to us by some white people we talked to that in the contracts we had signed we had all agreed to be locked up in a stockade at night or at any other time that our employer saw fit. Further, we learned that we could not lawfully break our contract for any reason and go and hire ourselves to somebody else without the consent of our employer. And, more than that, if we got mad and ran away, we could be run down by bloodhounds, arrested without process of law, and be returned to our employers who according to the contract, might beat us up brutally or administer any other kind of punishment that he thought proper. In other words, we had sold ourselves into slavery. And what could we do about it? The white folks had all the courts, all the guns, all the hounds, all the railroads, all the telegraph wires, all the newspapers, all the money, and nearly all the land. And we had only our ignorance, our poverty, and our empty hands. We decided that the best thing to do was to shut our mouths, say nothing, and go back to work. And most of us worked side by side with those convicts during the remainder of the 10 years. But this first batch of convicts was only the beginning. Within six months, another stockade was built, and 20 or 30 other convicts were brought to the plantation, among them six or eight women. The senator had bought an additional thousand acres of land, and to his already large cotton plantation, he added two great big sawmills and went into the lumber business. Within two years, the senator had, in nearly all... Two hundred Negroes working on his plantation, about half of them free laborers, so-called, and half of them convicts. The only difference between the free laborers and the others was that the free laborers could come and go as they pleased—at night, that is, they were not locked up at night— and were not, as a general thing, whipped for slight offenses. The trouble of the free laborers began at the close of the ten-year period. To a man, they all wanted to quit when the time was up. To a man, they all refused to sign new contracts, even for one year, not to say anything of ten years. And just when we thought that our bondage was at an end, we found that it had really just begun. Two or three years before, or about a year and a half after the senator had started his camp, he hit a staff a large store, which was called the commissary. All of us free laborers were were compelled to buy our supplies, food, clothing, etc. from the store. We never used any money in our dealings at the commissary, only tickets or orders, and we had a general settlement once each year in October. In this store, we were charged all sorts of high prices for goods because every year we we would come out in debt to our employer. If not that, we seldom had more than $5 or $10 coming to us, and that for a whole year's work. Well, at the close of the 10th year, when we kicked and meant to leave the senator, he said to some of us with a smile, and I will never forget that smile. I can see it now. Boys, I'm sorry you're going to leave me. I hope you will do well in your new places, so well that you will be able to pay me the little balances which most of you owe me. Word was sent out for all of us to meet him at the commissary at two o'clock. There he told us that, after we had signed what he called a written acknowledgement of our debts, we might go and look for new places. The storekeeper took us one by one and read to us statements of our accounts. According to the books, there was no man of us who owed the senator less than $100. Some of us were put down for as much as $200. I owed $165, according to the bookkeeper. These debts were not accumulated during one year, but ran back for three and four years, so we were told in spite of the fact that we understood that we had a full settlement at the end of each year. But no one of us would have dared to dispute a white man's word. Oh no, not in those days. Besides, we fellows didn't care anything about the amounts we were after getting away, and we had been told that we might go if we signed the acknowledgments. We would have signed anything just to get away. So we stepped up, we did, and made our marks. That same night, we were rounded up by a constable and ten or twelve white men who aided him, and we were locked up, every one of us, in the senator's stockades. The next morning, it was explained to us by the two guards appointed to watch us that, in the papers we had signed the day before, we had not only made acknowledgment of our indebtedness, but that we had also agreed to work for the senator until the debts were paid by hard labor." and from that day forward we were treated just like convicts really we had made ourselves lifetime slaves or peons as the law called us but call it slavery peonage or whatnot and the truth is we lived in a hell on earth what time we spent in the senator's peon camp i lived in that camp as a peon for nearly three years my wife fared better than i did as did the wives of some of the other Negroes, because the white men about the camp used these unfortunate creatures as their mistresses. When I was first put in the stockade, my wife was still kept for a while in the big house, but my little boy, who was only nine years old, was given away to a Negro family across the river in South Carolina, and I never saw or heard from him after that. When I left the camp, my wife had had two children by some of the white bosses, and she was living in fairly good shape in a little house off to herself. But the poor Negro women who were not in the class with my wife fared about as bad as the helpless Negro men. Most of the time, the women, or the peons or convicts, were compelled to wear men's clothes, Sometimes, when I have seen them dressed like men, in plowing or hoeing or hauling logs or working at the blacksmith's trade, just the same as men, my heart would bleed and my blood would boil, but I was powerless to raise a hand. It would have meant death on the spot to have said a word. Of the first six women brought to the camp, two of them gave birth to children after they had been there more than twelve months, and the babies had white men for their fathers. The stockades in which we slept were, I believe, the filthiest places in the world. They were cesspools of nastiness. During the three years that I was there, I am willing to swear that a mattress was never moved after it had been brought there except to turn it over once or twice a month. No sheets were used, only dark-colored blankets. Most of the men slept every night in the clothing that they had worked in all day. Some of the worst characters were made to sleep in chains— The doors were locked and barred each night, and tallow candles were the only lights allowed. Really, the stockades were but little more than cow sheds, horse stables, or hog pens. But I didn't tell you how I got out. I didn't get out. They put me out. When I had served as a peon for nearly three years and you remember that they had claimed that I owed them only $165. When I had served for nearly three years one of the bosses came to me and said that my time was up. He happened to be the one who was said to be living with my wife. He gave me a new suit of overalls which cost about 75 cents took me in a buggy and carried me across the broad river into South Carolina set me down and told me to get. I didn't have a cent of money, and I wasn't feeling well, but somehow I managed to get a move on me. I begged my way to Columbia. In two or three days, I ran across a man looking for laborers to carry to Birmingham, and I joined his gang. I have been here in Birmingham District since they released me, and I reckon I'll die either in a coal mine or an iron furnace. It don't make much difference which. Either is better than a Georgia peon camp and a Georgia peon camp is hell itself.